0: Aliens. This is the podcast where we examine strange claims about alternative history and ancient aliens in popular media. Do their claims hold water to an archaeologist, or are there better explanations out there? We are now on episode 45. I am Frederick, your guide into the world of pseudo archaeology. This time we're having a special episode dealing with only one site, actually, the site of Puma. Punku.
1: Fascinating thing about Pumapunka.
0: A complex located in Tiwanaku, in modern Bolivia. The site is known for its marvelous stones, some shaped like uh, giant letter H's. Of course, the alien proponents claim aliens built these as a landing zone or something. We will look into the claims and figure out what's really going on at this location. A quick little promotion here in the intro i will speak at skeptic camp on the 22nd of september in manchester uk it's part of the qed event this weekend if you attend make sure to say hi and listen to the talks remember that you find sources resources and reading suggestions on our website diggingupancientaliens.com. you can find contact info there if you notice any mistakes or have any suggestions If you like the podcast, I would appreciate if you left one of those fancy five-star reviews that I heard so much about. Now that we have finished our preparation, let's dig into the episode. So, we are back around Lake Titicaca again. How about we start with the ancient alien description of the site?
1: These are the mysterious ruins of Pumapunku, nearly 13,000 feet in the Altiplano of Bolivia. What you have here are massive blocks of granite scattered like some kids toy blocks around the site like some giant cataclysm just wiped out this entire area. Archaeologists are baffled by what Pumapunku was, how it looked, and what the purpose of this enormous structure would have been.
0: Right, let's start with what Pumapunku is, because there seem to be some confusion about this among the ancient alien theorists. Pumapunko could maybe better be described as a temple complex. The site is centered around a platform mound with a sunken plaza and monumental buildings on top of it. Around the mound we found ramps and other plazas that seem to belong to this temple complex. Pumapunko is, however, not the only construction in the area. It will be almost like claiming that um, Notre Dame to be an individual site. There are of course infrastructure and other buildings around this complex. Pumapunco is just one location at Tiwanaku, a place or maybe more accurately a city at its peak around 800 CE that inhabited up to 20,000 people and during this episode we will show how unbaffled archaeologists are about the site and the pedant in me also want to clarify something right now the stone structure we see is not built in granite i don't understand the ancient asanas fetish around granite i mean (sighs) You, you do you, I don't want to kink shame here. To give Childress some way out of this, at least, Jacob Trudy did write in 1860 that Tiwanaku got their granite slab from Cerro Zacapia. As we will learn, the stone used on the site is called andesite. The always exciting question is, of course, how old is Pumapunko and Tivonaco? Hugh Newman, author of Earth Grids that we covered in episode Aliens and the Secret Code, claimed the age to be, well, as follow.
1: Arthur Poznansky was a researcher at Park Bolivian. He worked at the site for many decades. And he concluded that the site must have been built about 17,000 years ago by studying the archaeoastronomy of that particular site.
0: Arthur, or Arturo Poznansky, is quite a... Well, exciting fellow. He is, however, problematic, but still an interesting person. The last name Posnanski is, well, not from a Bolivian family name. And if you go online, you will note that Arthur is claimed to be Polish, Austrian, German and Bolivian. So how is it then? Well... If we look at the name, it seems as uh, Arthur's family, to some extent, stem from from a Russian Jewish family that seems to have relocated to Poland. The name originates in Poznan, a region in central modern Poland. The area was inhabited by many Germans and Russians during the 1860s. And both of the Germans and Russian would spell their names differently compared to, well, the Polish people in the area. In Polish, the proper way to construct a name would be Poznanski. Germans spell it Posen, and Russian would spell it Poznanski. So the difference is in Polish we have a ski in the end and in Russian we have a sky in the end. In 1861, the emancipation of the serf took place, letting people move more freely. Many well-off people took this opportunity to, well, leave the area. And during this period, Austria-Hungary was one of the few places where Jews could get full citizenship. So many moved to Vienna, where Arthur was born in 1877. But we should note that Arthur grew up and lived in Germany, where his family owned several factories. They spoke German. He got all his education in German. He always preferred German and Austrian scholars, ID and equipment. However, he went on to spend most of his life in Bolivia, where he got a citizenship as Arturo Posnanski. So Arthur was... Not part Bolivian, but he later did adopt the citizenship, while not necessarily the Bolivian culture. In fact, he referred to the indigenous people as animalistic half-breeds. And Posnansky's racism grew as time passed and culminated in his work, What is Race?, where he divided different people into superior and inferior. Germany ranked with Japan, while Russia and China were ranked quite low on Posnanski's scale. Based on his Jewish heritage, it is not strange that Arthur strongly criticized Germany's political appropriation of race and argued that Jews and Aryans were not races, and he often came to defend the Jewish community. I think these are two things worth mentioning in this discussion. While Posnansky was educated, he had no archaeology, anthropology or history background. His experience seemed to have been that of a naval engineer and, well, businessman. Something that becomes quite clear in his work. While Posnansky did a lot of important work at Tivanako, it was mainly by documenting the structures art and gateways that he made his um, biggest contribution to the field. However, Arthur's own theories about the site is, well, crankish is maybe the most proper word to use here. He suggested that Tiwanaku was first located by the coast and later due to tectonic movement pushed the area to become part of the Altiplano Plains And the reason why Arthur wanted Tiwanaku to be by the causes was it would fit the idea of how, well, settlement raising grew during the time. And and Poznansky did often claim that uh, Tiwanaku was about 12,000 years old. But to Newman's credit, he also mentioned it could be as old as 17,000 BCE. How did uh, Posnansky arrive at this date then? Well, this was well before the invention of C-14. So Posnansky relied on astronomy. Arthur went on to receive funding from Germany to set up an observatory in Bolivia in 1926 and then just went out and uh, tried to you know, find alignments that he felt was important for the site. And astro Astronomy... It does have a place in our field, but Posnanski's methods give a bit of room for improvements there. He just went out and felt, well, this kind of looked like it and didn't really account for things being moved around on the site. And I didn't mention that Posnanski was problematic. I think you start to see this a little bit already, but let's dig into that wound a bit more, shall we? We get actually a connection to Thor Heyerdahl here, the Norwegian explorer, maybe mostly famous for his voyage with Kon-Tiki. Heyerdahl made a voyage to, well, prove his idea of this white superior race emigrating from South America, possibly from Tiwanaku to Easter Island. And the people from Heyerdahl's Tiwanaku made this journey, according to Heyerdahl, since an uh, inferior race forced them out basically and i find it likely that part of this idea stems from posnans and posnansky described tivanakos history with two separate races one inferior and one superior and these races was based on uh, craniometry eugenics and well the physical anthropology idea of the time The theory culminated in the 1937 work, Anthropology and Sociology of Inter-Andean and Neighboring Races, where he expanded on the scientific races that result in the book, What is Race?, that he published in 1943. The idea received criticisms already then, most, most notably maybe by Juan Comas, While Heyerdahl don't uh, cite the later two work in his 1952 book, American Indians in the Pacific, it would be strange if these ideas did not influence him. Heyerdahl did rely on much of Posnansky's other work, and, well, their ideas are eerily similar in the end. But if Posnansky's date is not accurate, now what is the truth then? And this is often more complicated than what most shows like this portray. Let us start at the beginning, shall we? When do we begin to see the first settlements around Lake Titicaca? And while people have lived in the area for a very long time, it's important to note that the shift from mobile groups to sedimentary areas were not based solely on agriculture. The shift seemed to have taken place around 2000 BCE, where we also see the introduction of new technologies such as simple architecture, ceramics, and a slow start to the domestication of plants. This period is usually referred to as late archaic. As I mentioned, the growth of small villages was not due to the introduction of agriculture. The population predominantly relied on fish and foraging. What is interesting here is that the ceramic seemed to not have been the the transformal event as it was in Europe. It appears to have been viewed more as another technology to add in the toolbox for them to use. After 2000 BCE, we enter into the early formative period. Here we start to see settlements grow with agriculture and the domestication of animals that seems to primarily fuel this period in comparison to the older period. We start to see gardens and fields being used and the people around Titicaca started to herd camelids and guinea pigs. We also start to see trade and social rank begin to, well, start evolving during this era. And the evolution of our ranked society continued during the middle formative period, which lasted roughly between 1300 to 500 BCE. Again, we see evidence of increased agriculture and probably the, the area start to use the raised field technology during this time. One of the most known pre-Tivanaco sites are Shiripa, where we truly see a ranked government take form and the site is dominated by a large mound with a 20 foot long sunken plaza in the middle and in the middle of the death court we find a carved stone and the residential houses or well the upper class residential houses contain beautiful decorations such as painted walls carved niches and a very interesting yellow brick floor. In the later part of this middle formative period, we find the earliest construction of Tivanaco. Currently, the often accepted date of the Tivanaco site is around 800 BCE. However, there is one carbon-14 sample that puts the date much further back in the 1600 BCE. However, from the look of things, the sample taken in 1970 by Carlos Ponce Sangriens might have been contaminated, unfortunately. Then we have Eric Marsh, who suggests we need to move the start date for Tivanaco into the 1st century, CE. Most of the analysis material doesn't predate the late formative period and therefore open up the question of when Tivanako was founded. One example Marsh points out is the lack of middle formative pottery in Tivanako. But as we see here, it did not appear out of nothing and has a long line of social and technological evolution behind it. So the site of Tivanako could have been founded at the earliest around 800 BCE. But how is it for Pumapunku? Well, a carbon 14 date from the site's earliest stage gives us a calibrated date of 536 to 600 CE. So, this is well, very well after the date ancient aliens suggest. This date is quite reasonable and this state is quite reasonable concerning well the other monumental sites at Tiwanaku while Pumapunko is the most known location we have at least 3 more well temple complexes or what we should call it the, the Karikala, also known as the subterranean temple, the Kalasasaya, and was often referred to as the twin of Pumapunko, the Akapana. Both Karikala and Kalasasaya are often, well, at least among the ancient alien proponents, described as being part of Pumapunko. Well, it's... It's a bit wrong to reuse our Paris example from before. It would be to say that the Arc de Triomphe and the Eiffel Tower are part of Notre Dame. And unfortunately, the Acapana are in worse shape than Pumapunco and it's not really getting the same attention as it's... uh, well, companion, if it had not been for excavation taking place in well the recent years, most visitors would not be able to distinguish this from a natural hillside. While the layout of Pumapunko and Acapana are slightly different, they have a similar design and intent. Both are platform structures that lead the ritual attendees. Through stairs and even with their massive sight, they managed to create quite intimate spaces where the ritual can take place. We also see that while Akapana in his prime probably have a more, well, visual dominance due to its height and its size, Pumapunku seem to have focused more on a ritual dominance with its massive stone gates and blind portals. I also think it's important to stress that the monuments were clearly part of a larger plan that incorporated all four of these uh, monuments. Something that's often left out from the pseudo-archaeologists is that Pumapunko was never completed. Tivanaco went into decline and was abandoned before this massive complex was entirely constructed. After the break, we will look into how Pumapunko was constructed and the early stone masonry that they used. So make sure to come back after these few messages. Welcome back. So now we know a bit more about the site, its history, some of the previous work that's been done, and well, all great stuff. And we have a bit more on our feet. So let's see what um, the ancient theorists have for us
1: now. One of the amazing things here at Pumapunku is the precision of the blocks. You can see with this block of granite that it's really been cut at very accurate right angles. Not only do these granite blocks have precision corners, but they also have these difficult drill holes that are going right through the rock.
0: So. In this clip, we see we see children walking around with a set square and accidentally showing that the blocks aren't at the right angles. They, they did not have to put this in the episode. They could have filmed it from a different angle, but they didn't. And I'm, I'm very grateful for this. Again, it's not granite. It's andesite and red sandstone. But they do ask a valid question how were the stone cut and dressed and Jordius sukolos and christopher dunn offer well a bit of a logical fallacy and a horrific experiment here
1: you've got vitrification on the laser cut side and then of course you've got circular tool marks on uh, the, the side cut with the dinosaur and then Whatever tool they used to cut the ancient surface must have been a different method. Now, do you think it's possible that some type of a diamond precision tool was used on the old surface but because it was such a long time ago that over time the surface became a bit more rough and we're talking 10 or even 15,000 years ago? that is a reasonable speculation i think we have to start examining um, a little more sophisticated tools that no longer exist
0: so these two got a hold of a stone from pumapunko and then proceed to saw and laser cut it yeah where and how they obtained this artifact and the ethical discussion before destroying it is unknown but not that they somehow ruled out that any other method than the diamond tip tool w- must have been what they used, even if it don't really match. They don't even test anything else, giving us a bit of a false dilemma here. I also want to state that looking at the cuts, it's clear that the diamond saw is uh, exceptionally different from the original Pumapunku stone masonry cut side. As we learned previously, the side is only 1500 years old. At the best, not nearly enough time to get the weathering Sukolos suggest. So, let's leave these diamond-tipped precision tools, because they're plainly wrong. Could there have been something else used? Are there any tools found? Unfortunately, we have not found any artifacts classified as chisels. The people of Tiwanaku did have metal work to some extent. We have found these eye-shaped cramps to hold the stones together at Pumapunku, And at the site of Pumapunku, they seem to have cast the clamps in place. But over at the Acapana, they used copper nickel arsenic alloy that seemed to have been cold hammered instead. So they clearly had and used metals. So why don't we find metal chisels at Tiwanaku? One answer could be that they, well, didn't use chisels of metals. We have previously talked about experimental archaeologist Dennis Stock. While mainly dealing with Egyptian archaeology, Stock's idea can, of course, be implemented here too. Stocks did experiments to determine how the Egyptians got those excellent cuts on granite, diorite, and even harder limestone Copper and bronze tools are quickly damaged. Even modern steel require frequent and severe sharpening. Stocks then started to experiment instead with flint chisels. And with these tools he got results much closer to the Egyptian work. So from the evidence we have in front of us, when the builders of Tivanako started to uh, well, extract the stone, they seem to have used hammer stone. And this is based on the pit scars and patterns of thars, cups, and pans that we find on stones still raw at the quarries and also on the stones dragged to the site that was ready to be quartered into smaller blocks. Juan-Pierre Protzen, who have done tremendous work on Andean stonework, described this back in 1993. And one hammerstone of hematite with scars of use has been found, well, unfortunately out of context, but it still gives us an idea on what they could have used. There are also well, scattered across Teovanaco quartzite cobbles that could have been, uh, well, back in the day, part of great hammerstones. Stella Nair and Protzen try to find out what method could have been used for, example, the H-block and other intricate carvings that we find at Pumapunko. And armed with the previous research and with Stock's experiments in mind, they try to find first a suitable material to test their theory on. And the Tivanaco used the finest andesite stone for the most exquisite work. And andesite usually have around 5.5 to 6 on the Moh scale. And this measures well, the hardness of a rock. The team says that ideally they would have used Tivanaco stones, but for apparent reasons, they selected a suitable substitute, a royalite stone. As for chisels, they they had a couple of options. So they added, according to Noir, flint, agate and jasper obsidian, graywacke, quartzite, and hematite. So first of all, they tried to figure out how you could get uh, this plain surface on the stones that we see at Tiwanaku. And Protzen used, and this is a quote, repeated and systematic use of the straight edge, such that he repeatedly moved the straight edge in concentric circles around several fixed points. he could could obtain a flat planar surface while hammering. And while it's possible that Tivanako builders used a straight edge, they could also use another tool too. In Egypt, for example, they used a tool called a boning rod, and it was three rods on a string, and they used this to get these very flat, nice surfaces. The Greeks, in turn, used something called a surface plate, And they used that to get this really, and I mean extremely close fit on the column drums that they used in their pillars. So again, we have several different ways to achieve a flat surface. But we're not entirely sure what the Tiwanaku constructor used, but not laser, at least. And when they start to cut these uh, intricate shape, Nair realized during the experimentation that Dependent on whether the form cut was exterior or interior, two plane or three plane, different uh, tools out of different stone was more suitable depending on what they wanted to achieve. With, uh, this is a quote again, Jasper and then finer flint and obsidian blades, Nair was able to work within half of a millimeter of the final line. The nice incisions in the internal edges were done with microblades of obsidian and flint. And to get this delicate, smooth look of Tivanaco masonry, some polishing and cleanup was needed. After the work was done, tool marks were often visible and these were removed by polishing the stone with obsidian. So the question to what did the builders of Tivanaku use, well, did have more answers than lasers and diamond tip saw blades. While the tools used have not been thoroughly found yet, this experiment gives us a remarkable insight into how the builders could have done it. It also proves that humans can be more creative when thinking outside the box. I believe it also showed that ancient alien proponents lack a bit of imagination. Since we use power tools today, they must have used them in the past. It's a quite lazy reasoning, to be honest. But could there be something else? Something proving that the Tivanako had contact with aliens, or at least with the Sumerians. Well, stay until after these few messages and you will find out. I'm just going to pause the episode here and thank you, my dear listener, for tuning in. It's great having you here, exploring the world of pseudoscience with me. If you want to support the cause of educating people and combating pseudoscience, I'd like if you become a Patreon or a paid subscriber of the show for as little as 2.50 per episode, which is less than what the Loch Ness monster asked for. You will help me continue producing high-quality content and gain access to a treasure trove of exclusive bonus material. Imagine. The benefits of becoming a paid subscriber where you gain VIP access to our exclusive pseudoscientific book club. You will have the opportunity to hear me read and discuss the works of our favorite on-screen experts for you. To sign up and become a paid subscriber, simply head over to diggingupancientaliens.com support. You will find all the information you need to join our community there. Your backing of the program would empower me to create more content that assists people while keeping the show as accessible as possible. So let's combat misinformation and pseudoscience together. Just head over to diggingupancientdnacom support to sign up. Together, we will uncover the truth one episode at a time. Welcome back. So, could there be evidence of contact between Sumer and Tiwanaku? I doubt it, but let's look at the ancient alien claim, as we usually do.
1: This is perhaps one of the most important archaeological artifacts ever discovered at Tiwanaku or Pumapunku. This is the famous Fuente Magna bowl discovered near Tiwanaku. It's a ceramic bowl. And it has written on it, Sumerian cuneiform plus Proto-Sumerian hieroglyphic script. This script is coming from circa 3000 BC. It draws a direct connection between the ancient Sumerians and Tiwanaku and Pumapunku.
0: So the first issue here is, as Childress states, Sumer was a thing around 3000 BCE. We know that Tiwanaku did not exist until the earliest, the earliest, absolute earliest date, 800 BCE. And as we have discovered just a few moments ago, the date is more likely to be around 100 CE. So there's a bit of a distance between these two cultures. And during the 100 CE, the Sumerian cuneiform script was really no longer in use there. The second issue is that the artifact was not found by an archaeologist. And to be honest, we don't really know exactly where or when it was found. In most cases, if you go online, it's often reported that it was discovered in 1950. But you will also encounter dates such as 1958 or 1960 and a couple of other dates in between and after. The discovery is supposed to have been done by a local farmer at the capitalized uh, Shua Hacienda. As this would be some sort of acronym, it is not. And this farm is thought to have been owned by a Manjon family. Now, there is a location called Shua, and there seem to be haciendas at the site, and it's located north of Lake Titicaca. And Keith Fitzpatrick points out that two pseudoscience believers set out to try to find this Manjon family, or the owners of the hacienda, or some person connected with this uh, artifact and by going around showing pictures of the bowl they encountered a man who recognized it now this man is only known as maximilian and he is not provided with any last name and he called the bowl when asked by these uh, well let's call them researchers el plato de Juanjo since he had used it as a feeding tray for pigs before giving it to the museum. And we know at one point or another the and we know that at one point or another the bowl ended up in uh, well, the arms of Max Portugal Zamora, who did publish an article about the bowl in 1975 in the magazine Hoy. Supplemento LP 6-7. But the idea that this had Sumerian writings didn't arise until Mario Montagno Aragon published an article in 79 about this. So the origin of the bowl is quite murky. We don't know where or when the bowl was really found. We don't know what it looked like when it was found. And some sites claim the bowl was restored at one point. While some don't. We don't know maybe who found it. There's one man called Maximilian who claimed that he found it, but the interview took place at least 40 years after the fact. So there's a forest of red flags going up here. Now, the origin might be shady, but does it have Sumerian or Sumerian proto writing on it then? Much of the translations and interest in the bowl seem to much of the translations and interest in the bowl seem to originate with Hugh Bernard Fox and Clyde Ahmad Winter, while Fox claimed it to be Phoenician. Winters, who is an Afrocentric scholar, who, for example, claimed that the Olmec came from Africa, declare it to be Sumerian or Proto-Sumerian. And we often encounter Winters' supposed translation online. But Fox and Winters' supposed translation are, well, (laughs) at best, wrong. And Carl Fagan have done a great job comparing Clyde Winters' suggested translation to, well, the real Sumerian signs. And he noted that almost all suggested transliteration don't match what what the known Sumerian alphabet suggests that they would. And some characters don't even exist. And in those cases, Clyde Winters has just declared them Proto-Sumerian and translated them anyway. Fagan points out that the values are pointing in almost all cases in the wrong direction. The signs seem to rotate randomly while keeping its, uh, well transliterated meaning and it seemed to have been written by someone who might have seen Sumerian at one point or another but when they sat down to create this writing on the bow they didn't have the writing in front of them and were working out of pure memory so to say so let's see how Clyde Winter suggested the transliteration of the bow is
2: Kirkur, Kirkur, Kur, Nia, Pa and Ash, Satur, Siash, Esh, 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 es, es. Papa, Geluta, Midu Luta, Barnu Ash, Ash, Tien.
0: And Winter translation
2: is Approach in the future. One endowed with great protection, the great Nia. The d- divine one, Nia, to establish purity, establish gladness, establish character. Use this talamans in to spout, O diviner, the unique advice at the temple. The righteous shrine. Anoint this shrine. Anoint this shrine. The leader takes an oath to establish purity. A favorable oracle to establish character. O leader of the cult, open up a, O leader of the cult, open up a unique light for all who wish for a noble life. And neither the
0: transliteration or the translation make much sense. Well, there is Tivanaco art on the bowl, uh, but the uh, Well, Sumerian script is, well, (laughs) quite nonsensical, and the translation is, well, more or less the same. It means nothing and has really nothing to do with Sumerian ideas or, well, writing (laughs) in general. So what we have is a fake and not a very good one either. And on that shocking news, (laughs) I will leave you for this time, but... I hope to see you next time, too. And please say hi if you visit QED on the 22nd to the 24th of September 2023. I will be in appearance. Until then, please spread the word by leaving a positive review on platforms like iTunes, Spotify, or, even better, among your fellow trench dwellers. For more information about me and my podcast, check out diggingupancientaliens.com. You will find an extensive list of sources and resources and reading recommendations for those eager to expand their knowledge on the subject matter on the episode page. You also find me on most social media sites, and if you have comments, corrections, suggestions, or you're hankering to write that email in all caps, you find my contact info on the website. Sandra Martelor created the intro music, and our outro is by the band called Transgrv, who sings their song Tin Foil Hat or Fovi Hat. Links to both of these artists can be found in the show notes. Until next time, keep shoveling that science. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode. Remember that we have a subscription going on. You can become a patron or other subscriber for as little as 250 per episode. Go to slash That is go to slash support to read more information and sign up
1: right there.